you would, open up your Bibles to Luke 12, verse 49. We're going to try to get through 13.9, and we're going to speak about some misconceptions and misunderstandings as they pertain to Jesus Christ and His gospel, um, and how they can lead to some misopportunities. This time of year is, is meant to celebrate the uh, birth of Christ, but in the midst of the festivities, um, you know, the gospel message can get lost. It can get lost in the trees, in the presence, in the family, in the food. Um, and even in the church, we can develop this kind of romanticized view of the Advent and the Incarnation. And, you know, we think of the nativity scene and, and, and about adoring a little baby. And, and the nativity scene ends up being like a zoo, you know, on our mantles. And so, uh, you know... I, I don't want to talk so much about the Christmas narrative as much as I want to talk about what it means. Because the fact that God, Jesus, the Son of God, descended into the realm of men has some very huge implications. And so I want to get into that uh, this morning. Um, but first, let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this opportunity uh, to worship you this morning, to bring you honor, to bring you praise. Um, in our singing, God, we ask that you're lifted high right now, God, in our worship. We ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, that you would uh, just give us a little glimpse of your glory this morning. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so our passage today takes place between Luke 9, which is the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, and Luke 19, uh, which is the beginning of the Passion Week. And Luke is writing, and he's describing Jesus's life and ministry as he's traveling to Jerusalem to go to the cross. And Jesus, at this time, he's teaching in a lot of parables about the kingdom of God, about uh, discipleship, about practical living and holiness, um, and even judgment. And although large crowds are coming out to see Jesus at this time, the nation as a whole has rejected Christ, and they're becoming hardened in their hearts. And so Jesus' teachings are progressively being filled with with warnings. And, you know, Jesus also knows that his time is imminent, it's coming to the cross. And so he was trying to impart some of, some, some of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to have a life of faith in God. And so this is where we pick up our text. Um, join me in Luke 12, 49. It says, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it already be kindled? Right? Merry Christmas, right? It's, uh, there's not really any easing into this one. Um, but listen, this is the reason for the season. And, and admittedly, I know it sounds shocking because we do have this idea of adoring this baby. And we think that this guy grows up and, and becomes this meek, kind of feeble sentimentalist that's, that's going to bring peace on earth to men everywhere. And Jesus here is saying, I come to send fire. I came to judge the earth. In Matthew 3, 11, uh, John the Baptist says about Jesus, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus here, or actually the Jews, you know, they, they understood fire in a couple ways. The first was as a refiner's fire that was meant to purify. And you think of throwing uh, like metal in a, into a fire, into a furnace, and they heat it up. All the impurities rise to the top, and the smith would... Uh, you know, scrape all that dross off the top onto the floor, and they would repeat this process until they were left with this very purified metal. But the Jews, they also understood fire in another way where it was consuming, 
right? It represented judgment. You, th you think of things like wood, hay, stubble. You throw that into a fire, and it burns up. It perishes. It doesn't last. And so Jesus' message here is very simple. His gospel message, when he came to the earth, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? And so Jesus, he confronts everybody with a choice. You can't sit on the fence about who Jesus is. Decisions have to be made to believe or to not believe, to repent or to, to remain unrepentant. And so the gospel then is like a fire, right? That's either going to purge the impurities of our hearts and transform us into the children of God, or it's going to act as a judge that reveals our rebellious hearts and shows that we're, we're leading down to, towards condemnation. And in John 5.24, Jesus says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. The difference between judgment and life is what you choose to do with Jesus Christ, because he will be your savior or he will be your final judge. And would you notice here in the text, not only does he bring the fire of judgment, he wishes it were already kindled, right? Jesus is actually here longing for judgment. And again, this, this doesn't reconcile usually with the conception that we have of Christ, but we need to ask ourselves why. Why does Jesus want judgment to come already? You know, we're, we're, we're limited in, in our humanness, and we fail sometimes to understand the, the justice and the holiness of God, right? The righteousness of God. And we tend to dedicate ourselves to scripture passages that have to do with mercy and compassion and salvation and grace. And all those things are true about God, but those are things that we benefit from his character, from his attributes, right? And there's something to say about God's justice, about his absolute purity, his absolute holiness, his absolute glory. And those attributes of God demand that sin be paid for. They demand wrath on sin. And, you know, I know that, you know, when you speak about judgment, it, it, it makes people kind of squirm in their seats. And that's all right. But, you know, a lot of times we have this idea that God is defined by love. That God is the center of God's nature is love. And we hear this quite often. And, and you know, I would beg to differ. You know, I would like to challenge that because, you know, love is just one of God's many perfect attributes. If love were at the center of God's very nature, then he could have saved us, forgiven us, without sending his son to die on a cross, right? But the fact is that God's holiness demands that sin be paid for. It was his love Right? That compels him to pay that price himself. And so, you know, stated simply here, Jesus wishes it were already kindled because he longs for the end of sin and sinners. You know, think about it. Uh, sin has been running rampant in our universe for generations and generations. You know, and it's even saturated everything. Everything is saturated. Even the people that are made in his own image. 
You know, and we need to ask ourselves, you know, like how, how long do we think that God is going to endure this sin before his justice kicks in? You know, a proper view of holiness of God, it, it should cause all of us to ask ourselves, you know, what is my sensitivity to sin? You know, do I see that my sin offends God? Do I see that my sin separates me from a relationship that God desires to have with me? You know, and this causes Jesus to speak these words in 1250. He says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? And here we get a glimpse at the cost and the measure of what it's going to take in order for sin's power to be broken. You know, baptism here is a reference. It's a foreshadowing to the suffering and the anguish that Jesus is going to experience on the cross. Right? He's going to be dipped. He's going to be submerged in the wrath and in the fury of God to pay for the sins of the world. And there's a phrase here that says, am I straightened? And it's a, a, a colloquialism of the authorized version of the Bible. But if you go to the original Greek, the word is syneko. And it means to be distressed, right? Which makes sense. Because if you were to imagine Jesus here for a second, you know, from that baby in the manger, he's grown up to be a man, but he's not any man, right? He's a sinless man. He knows deity. And he's got to live his whole life knowing that he's going to be rejected by his family, by his friends, by his country, by the world, essentially. He's going to be humiliated. He's going to be scourged, laughed at, mocked, spit on, beaten. And he's going to be stripped naked and murdered on a cross. And that is not even the worst of it. He's going to bear the weight of guilt for every transgression that man has ever made throughout time in his holy body. And because of that, Jesus was separated from God the Father for the first time in eternity. And he cried and he died alone on the cross saying, why have you forsaken me? You know, it, it, it's got to be devastating to have this on your mind knowing that this is, this is your future, this is what's coming. And he says, I'm distressed about it till it be accomplished. But listen, for us in the church, we have something to be very thankful for and very grateful for because if you notice here that Jesus says, till it be accomplished, right? Christ doesn't abandon his mission, okay? He doesn't run from the adversity. He doesn't get stifled by the fear of the cross, okay? He accomplishes the Father's will. And if Jesus here doesn't prove himself unfaithful at the most critical and trying time the universe has ever seen, you know, what makes us think in the church that he's not going to remain faithful to us, you know, to his bride, his church now? You know, Christ is more, more than faithful. But here's where the text kind of transitions, because being called to a life of faith is, is going to require us as well to make some hard decisions. It's going to involve some trying times, some stressful times, and even discouraging and sad times. You know, Christ is going to propose this question here in verse 51. He says, Suppose ye that I came to bring peace on earth. And this is another misconception that, that we have. It's kind of out of the ordinary, especially around this time of year, because, you know, we're used to hearing things like peace on earth and goodwill towards men, right? Luke actually writes that in chapter 2, 
You know, we hear Isaiah 9, 6 that says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You know, and it's true that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, yet the kind of peace that he brings isn't necessarily what the world thinks of when they think of peace at Christmas time. You know, the world has a few different understandings of peace. You know, the first is there's a need for inner peace, right? The, the world, people struggle with a lot of inner conflict. There's stress, there's anxiety, there's fear. You know, Christmas time, if you ask a mental health professional, they'll tell you that Christmas time is one of the most depressing times of the year, right? There's a lot of irony in that. And the world also understands that there's uh, a need for inner, uh, interpersonal peace because there's a lot of inter interpersonal conflict between people. You, get, you got conflict in your families. You got conflict at work. You got conflict with total strangers, right? We see this all in our politics right now. The world also understands that there's a need for peace internationally, right? There's a need for world peace. This is what most people think of when they think of peace at Christmas time. You know, last week we had uh, Wes Gasaway here, and he was testifying about this very thing of the, the uh, tensions in the Middle East. You know, the, 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 the riots and the uprisings and the wars and rumors of wars. You know, this is, you know, the world understands there's a need for, for a world peace. But listen, there, there's something distinct about the peace that Christ brings. In John 14, 27, Jesus actually says this. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. You know, peace on earth or a universal peace, it won't come until Jesus' second coming when he destroys evil forever and he reigns supreme. But right now... Right? The peace that Christ offers us now is peace with God. Peace in our hearts. Jesus gives us the kind of peace that is given to a person's life. And we all need that peace. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? All have sinned. My family will tell you how much of a wretch I am, right? I mean, Nate's over there, you know, nodding his head like, yeah, you know. But listen, that sin, it keeps us in conflict with God. But listen, because Christ paid the price for your sin on the cross through this baptism, right, that he's expecting, that he's anticipating, you can be justified. You can be reconciled. You can have a peace with God. And the Bible calls that a peace that surpasses all understanding with God. The irony here, though, is that the peace that Christ offers spiritually, it oftentimes will bring division here on the earth. And that's because the gospel separates. You know, believers in Jesus, they're, they're spiritually reborn, they're sanctified, they're set apart, they're holy unto God. That's what it means to be a saint. You know, to those who believe in the gospel, it's good news, it's life-saving, it's life-changing, but to those who reject it, it's repulsive. It's nonsense, right? It stirs up anger in a, lot of, in, in a lot of cases. And this is why Christ says that, suppose ye that I came to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. 
Because where there's no peace between sinners and God, there's no inner peace. There's no peace between people. There's not going to be any international peace. There's only going to be strife and conflict. And so to illustrate this point, Jesus uses society's most fundamental unit here, the family. Uh, Let's read in verse 52 and 53. He says, For from henceforth there shall be five in a house, divided three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father. The mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother. The mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And again, this this illustration here is not uh, a declaration that this is going to happen to every single believer uh, that comes to faith. But what it is, is it's indicative of the reactions that people are going to have when you choose to follow Christ, when you choose to identify yourself with him. Strife occurs even in the most tightest of bonds that you think you have in this world. Christ causes that division sometimes, right? The gospel is offensive for those who reject God. For those who refuse grace, who reject Christ, it it can be offensive. And the clarity and the definitiveness of the Lord's gospel message, it causes strong reactions. It stokes emotion. You know, in in, in Jesus' day, when, when Jews became Christians, they were excommunicated from the synagogue. I mean, that was the center of their cultural life, and they were basically kicked out. In today's society, Muslims who decide to follow the Lord, you know, they face a harsh reality, right? Brother Dave probably testified of a lot of these stories from our missionaries that serve in Muslim countries where this is the case. You know, maybe you, you came out of a, a, a Catholic background and there's tension there between, you know, the, the, the Lord that we choose to follow and believe in and, and the Catholic system. You know, maybe you're, you're a believer who's, you know, uh, the only one in your family. You come from a non-religious household, and you're, and you're looked at like that Christian weirdo, right? That, that just chooses the Lord and his church over some of the family things that you do, you know? And it's, it's true. We've all experienced that. But listen, this, this passage doesn't advocate that we detach from our families. It doesn't ask us to completely separate ourselves from the world to insulate ourselves. It's just stating the fact that your belief in Christ is going to bring you into some crisis moments. And the implication is, you know, are you going to be able to withstand the opposition that you're going to face as a follower in Jesus Christ? You know, is God going to be first and foremost in our life or is our family or our kids? You know, is our job or our finances or politics or pandemics you know is the pandemic going to impede on our worship the way that the lord prescribes in his new testament or you know will we crumble in the face of conflict we need to ask ourselves you know is god going to reign supreme in our life or will we just fizzle when that conflict arises look at these are some misconceptions about jesus and what he came to do but they can lead to some missed opportunities. And they have dire consequences. If you read in Luke 12, 54 through 56, it says, And he said also to the people, When you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, There cometh a shower. 
And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it that you don't discern the time? And here Jesus states two simple truths in these verses. You know, the first is that man's natural senses can be very discerning. You know, Israel wasn't equipped with a, a Doppler radar, right? They didn't have Teresa Bryant, uh, you know, with all her gadgets and gizmos uh, predicting the weather, right? The Mediterranean was to the west. The mountains were in the north. To the south and east was desert. And so they knew when a, a cloud was coming from the west that it was bringing rain. And the same is true with the wind here. You know, their climate's a lot like ours in the fact that we know when a, a south wind rushes through here, it's bringing a heat wave. And so the point is, you know, Jesus is saying that humans are skillful in studying. They're skillful in experimenting and drawing conclusions in the natural world. But listen, the second truth is this. People don't discern spiritual matters. Right? When it comes to the spiritual senses, man is undiscerning. He doesn't take the time to observe. He doesn't take the time to experience spiritual things. And in this case, Israel fails to discern the time. You know, a person in tune with the spiritual things of God right here would have recognized that the, the weeks of Daniel were about to commence. Right? All the prophets have been testifying of the Messiah coming. They would have taken into consideration the, Jesus' miraculous birth and his genealogy. They would have listened to John the Baptist who came in the power and the spirit of Elijah, you know, testifying that the Messiah was here. You know, what about the, the wise men from the manger scene? You know, they, they testified of a world outside of Israel that was anticipating Jesus, the Messiah. Not to mention, they had Jesus' own life and ministry right in front of their eyes. And they rejected him. And this is why Jesus calls them hypocrites here. You know, how is it that you don't discern the times? Because there wasn't much more that Jesus could do to prove he was who he said he was. Right, the over evidence is overwhelming here. You know, and the problem then and the problem now is not evidence. It's an inexcusable unbelief. It's a refusal to believe. You know, God's not concerned with bringing more signs from heaven because there's enough of that. God's great concern is meeting people within their lives, within their hearts, where they really need God. And so the question becomes, you know, am I paying attention to what's going on? Right? Do I have the spiritual eyes to see that the things that are going on right now around me in this world in front of me, you know, is God suggesting that he's trying to get my attention with what's going on? You know, or are we just suppressing that truth? You know, Christ asks here in verse 57, he says, yeah, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? Why do you not judge what is right, right? Or why don't you just, why don't you do what's right? And this is one of the most honest and thought-provoking and revealing questions that you can ask somebody because it takes a person who's honestly open, right? Somebody who's willing to expose themselves for what they really are to answer this question. And Jesus' call is to self-examination here, right? To examine your own life. This is a call here for unbelievers to, to ask themselves if, if they need to get right with God. You know, if, there, if there's a need to repent and believe in Christ. But the principle, it applies to the church as well. You know, are there, are there sins that we're choosing to hang on to? You know, maybe nobody knows what they are, but 
you know, the Lord knows. Is it time to give that up? You know, maybe it's those sins that are, are hindering our spiritual growth or our spiritual development. You know, maybe they're impeding on a ministry opportunity or, or your ability to witness to somebody. You know, Jesus uses a, a second illustration here in verse 58 and 59. He says, When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last might. You know, the phrase here in 58, mayest be delivered in the Greek is apolosso, and it means to come to a settlement. You know, and Jesus' point here is saying, look, when a man has a hopeless case, the best thing that he can do is settle out of court. Because if he goes to court, he's going to have to face the judge. And if you're found guilty, you might end up in prison the rest of your life. And so it is with God. You know, the time is running out. and Man needs to settle with God. He needs to make every effort immediately to this. Because if you fail to make peace with God, then you're going to have to pay the very last might. Right? Which is a reference here, uh, an allusion to hell. You couldn't pay back your debt when you were in prison. You couldn't work. The implication is you're there forever. Hell, my friends, is a literal place. It's the state of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. It's intense. It's endless. And Jesus speaks about it more than, he, than anybody in the New Testament. In fact, he speaks about hell three times as much as he does heaven. And that makes sense because he doesn't desire that anybody see that place. You know, instead he provides a way for men and women to escape the wrath of God, even if it means his own life is taken. You know, too often people fail to recognize the extent of their pride and they think that somehow in the end the good will outweigh the bad. Right? God doesn't grade on a bell curve, right? His standard is perfection, and anything short of that is sin. And Jesus is pleading at this point, check yourself, you know, don't allow yourself to be deceived about this life. You know, ask yourselves, you know, are, are, are you ready to face the Creator? Are you ready to face the judge? Or do you need to settle your accounts now with Jesus? You know, this leads us to two examples here of misopportunity. The first here is in 13.1. It says, There were present at this season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Pilate, we know, he had a reputation for cruelty. He crucified our Lord. He used to steal money from the temple treasury and fund all these Roman building projects. He had a real uh, contempt for the Jews, and he loved to, to demonstrate his authority over them. And... In this case, presumably he had his guards go in there and murder these Galileans while they were in the middle of worship. And he mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. And it's an incredible desecration by Pilate, but, you know, it's a, it's, it's a terrible way to die in the middle of worship, right? And the crowd is here suggesting that these men died this horrific death because somehow they were worse sinners than other people. And Jesus, in 13, 2 and 3, it says... 
You know, Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. You know, Jesus knew what was in the heart of the people was self-righteousness. You know, thinking because they didn't come to the, a similar fate that they were somehow better people. And Jesus explains here that, you know, suffering has nothing to do with a person's spiritual state because the fact is that all people suffer because all people have sin. And unless they repent, they're all going to end up dying eternally. You know, the only reason an unbelieving person is alive right now is because God has withheld their judgment for a little bit of time. And he's choosing instead to demonstrate his grace, his mercy, his compassion, hoping that that person would repent and believe. You know, the reality is this, you know, everybody's days are, are numbered and nobody lives forever. You know, Jesus ties another unfortunate accident here in 13, 4 and 5. He says, Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. You know, these were presumably 18 construction workers that were working on a tower and the structure fell and crushed them. And it seems like a random kind of calamity out of nowhere that happened. But again, Jesus kind of reiterates his position here. He says, it doesn't matter how you die, right? All men are sinful. The question is not, why did these people die? But what right did they have to live? In their sin, in, in our sin, we oppose God. Our sin is an offense to his holiness. And if we don't get right before the Lord... Death, like the 18 here, might come suddenly without an opportunity to repent. You know, we're living in some strange times. You know, every day I go home from work, I want to decompress, turn on the news or flip on the web, you know, or scroll through social media. And I'm just constantly bombarded by the death count, right? It's everywhere. There's web pages for the coronavirus with a, with a ticker and a death map on there. All interactive and everything for you. And if it's not the death count, then it's all the people that are infected that might enter into the death count. It's an incredible fascination. And, and it's because people are obsessed with self-preservation in this world. And this isn't the spot. You know, this isn't nothing new. From the beginning of time, people have lived and they have died. You know, and I, I don't want to minimize the effect that pain and suffering has on those who are, who are uh, here mourning the loss of their loved ones. But that pain and suffering, it testifies to the devastation of sin in this world. You know, what our focus needs to be set on is eternity. You know, we're created as eternal beings. We're going to live forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. And so the reality is, if you want to live, if you truly want to live, then you've got to be willing to die to yourself and realize that you're a sinner deserving of God's divine judgment. But listen, one who's willing to receive a pardon 
One who's really willing to receive forgiveness, to receive His grace, to be granted from God life in its fullness. You know, finally here, Jesus leaves us with one last illustration. I, I think it's fitting for the church. In 13, 6 and 7, he says, He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. And then he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And Jesus, you know, he comes to this earth with a great hope for Israel to be redeemed to receive her king, to receive her inheritance. But Israel misses the opportunity. They rejected the king, they rejected the savior and missed out on God's blessing. You know, they're this fig tree that failed to produce a spiritual life. You know, Christ is asking, what good is a tree that doesn't bear any fruits? You know, as a gardener here, God has expended all kinds of resources nurturing and cultivating and caring and loving for this tree. And it's just rejected that attention and failed to produce spiritual fruit. You know, God allows time for us living on this earth. But if we fail to produce a spiritual life, we're no better than that tree not producing any fruit, waiting to get cut down. Today, our passage kind of concludes open-ended. It waits for a response from the hearer in 13, 8 and 9. And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. So fertilize it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, you shall cut it down. You know, as I close, you know, for those of us who are believers, for those who confess Christ, there's nothing more important right now in this life than glorifying God and living to bring more into his kingdom. This is sole purpose. And we have an incredible opportunity right now with people's spiritual senses being aroused by the things that are going on in the world right now. You know, we can't be sidelined by the sins that are in our lives. And I'm preaching to myself here. You know, this was hard to go through this and have this just constantly in your head for the past month. You know, I'm just, I feel like a worm, you know what I'm saying? But listen, I need to examine myself. We in the church need to examine ourselves. You know, if your spiritual life is in a rut, you know, it, 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 if it's not what you know it can be, you don't be a tree planted in the church just sucking up resources. Right? Failing to produce a spiritual life. Be willing to open up with God. Be willing to expose yourself to God and to his people. And find some believers that you can surround yourself with and grow together. And we have a, a, a incredible opportunities here to, to get involved in this church and in community groups. And, and, and do life with people during the week, not just on a Sunday morning. You know, I, I'll put a shameless plug in here. You know, I'm sure the other nights are great. But, man, Larry's on fire, man, you know? <laughs> really, though, you know, don't miss an opportunity to grow. You know, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you know, I just want to encourage you to stop resisting. Come to faith in Jesus. You know, maybe this year hasn't been the best year, you know? Things have been turned upside down in our lives. We've 
suffered some loss in a lot of different ways. And, you know, maybe you're just incredibly frustrated just seeing what the world is turning into. You know, listen, God hasn't given up on you. You're still here. You still have an opportunity to believe. You know, Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. He may not always be near. And you may not always have that opportunity. You know, if you're sitting here and you think, Well, you know, I, I don't need God. God's not my thing. And I just want to ask you, you know, are, are you willing to gamble with your soul? Are you willing to face God when the time for judgment comes and acknowledge that you rejected the free gift of grace that he's given to you? You know, God places eternity in everybody's heart. And it's, it's why deep down inside, everybody knows that there's more than just this life. You know, don't miss your opportunity to experience life with God. You know, all you need is an, is an honest heart and a willingness to repent and believe.